Hello and welcome to BotCast number 30. I'm your host, Sean Hendren, and in this episode, we look at BWV 1044, the so-called triple concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach. You thought you knew Bach's concertos, right? He wrote some violin concertos, he wrote some Brandenburg concertos, he wrote some harpsichord concertos. What other concertos are there? Well, there's the Italian concerto for the harpsichord, but what is this weird singleton, the triple concerto? Uh, it's more than not related to the Brandenburg concertos. If you, if you will, if you, if you look at your collection of what you may own, you may have the triple concerto, the concerto in A minor, written for harpsichord, violin, and flute. A very similar uh, instrumentation to the fifth Brandenburg concerto number five, right? Same instrumentation, BW 1050. But the triple concerto isn't one of the Brandenburg concertos, yet it exists. And why do we have a single concerto by Bach with this instrumentation? I think more than anything, it speaks to the fact that Bach probably wrote concertos that no longer exist, right? When we think back to the Brandenburg concertos as an example, this is this collection if we didn't have the original score that Bach wrote out and sent to Brandenburg, and we believe he sent it as a, as a sort of a resume, right? As examples, either as an opening, I'm sending you a letter, I'm sending you some concertos, please consider me for the position. Um, and we don't have much except that when the collection of music is being sold off, there's this set of six concerti and we happen to see it's written by Bach and we go, oh my gosh, did he sit down and write these from scratch? Well, we know that's not true because there are fragments of the Brandenburgs that have existed in other forms. For instance, the one number four uh, exists for us in a version for two recorders and harpsichord instead of the violin, and we have uh, parts of number one and parts of number three that have been included in cantatas. So it's safe to assume that when Bach sat down to apply himself uh, to putting together his best instrumental works, he pulled upon not only maybe some original ideas, but some old ideas things he had kind of had in the background. And then we get this concerto that wasn't included in that set, so we don't know that it was written before the Brandenburgs or after, but it has that similar instrumentation. And you have to believe, looking at number five, Brandenburg five, that the solo harpsichord part likely was the written out transcription, if you will, of what Bach would have improvised, which is pretty incredible. It's a pretty incredible, long, written out solo that really is a Baroque exemplar of the cadenza. And uh, the thing that we don't get a lot in modern performances today on record, and I will say this probably extends pretty much into live performance as well, though I've uh, having gone to concerts, I do hear it sometimes in live performance, but literally not to the level that I think it could be, is that idea of cadenza, that in an Italian concerto especially, 
that composers gave us this little window to add something. And there's a term for this that escapes me at the moment. If I come across it, I will, I will share it with you. But there's this little tidbit at the end of a fast movement that where a composer can sort of give you that harmonic sequence and say, okay, if soloist, if you want to include something now is your chance. And 99% of the time, the performances we get that are authentically, uh, and I use that term very with an asterisk, um, maybe historically informed and informed in the, in the best way possible. They're informed, but they don't recreate really what we would expect at the time that things were written because, frankly, we, we can never get there. We, we weren't there. And so what I'm telling you right now is sure, sheer speculation, right, that somebody, a performer, would have improvised on the spot with a solo instrument, and yet there are exemplars, right? If you look at Locatelli's uh, opus, I believe it's opus three, The Art of the Violin, uh, he writes out these capriccios for the violin. And there's, there's these kind of the sense of, oh, is this what a... If this what a star performer of Locatelli's renown would have performed, a Veracini, a, a Pisendel would have would have performed, and here we have this this performance uh, encapsulated in two ways. By the way, in Brandenburg Five, we have two versions of it: one a very short solo, and then one that's that's very long, and we get this idea of what Bach may have been up to if he is sitting at the keyboard. So BW 1044 is this curious little thing. If you look at your collection of, of Brandenburg's, if you have any, you may notice that this was tacked on as an extra concerto. This is actually one of the, the first ways I encountered it. Uh, it was tacked on as an extra concerto when Musica Antiqua Colne in 86, I believe, recorded the six Brandenburg concertos and they included the triple concerto in that recording. Uh, other folks will have included the orchestral suites. That is a common uh, pairing to get the six Brandenburg chairs and the four orchestral suites. But the triple concerto is sort of this um, uh, really, in terms of a Bach concerto and, and certainly in terms of a, a Vivaldi, it's a pretty long concerto. The first movement can, can go almost to nine minutes. And I have one performance in my collection that goes beyond the nine minute mark for the, just the first movement. And that's where I wanna spend a particular amount of time is looking at how performers tackle this big movement. Um, it opens up with a, it doesn't give any introduction. It's just boom. I mean, if you were to count the introduction, it'd be the first note. Boom, an A, right? It's like perpetual motion machine once it gets started. But it's this first note, this boom. And everybody seems to be playing together, but then the voices sort of emerge out of the fabric, and you start to hear these three voices. And so one of the issues for the modern performer is the balance between those three voices. The second is the tempo that's chosen and whether it fits the music and if it fits the performance space. That's something I, I hear a lot in, in recordings. And I, um, it almost seems like a pet peeve of mine that I want to talk about it, but I can't escape this, the sense that 
when we're listening to a performance that the space in which performers perform is part of the experience. And I certainly believe that's the, the case when you go to a live performance. You, you, you may go to a concert where the space in which you're hearing the concert is so special that it, 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 it's one of the things that gets you to go to the place. Uh, a good example is when I was in Paris, there are performances almost, I think, all the time at the Saint-Chapelle um, Church, which is uh, known for its stained glass. Right, and the, and the folks that are performed there are not people you typically see records for at the at the store um, or on online. You don't recognize the performers. It's like, oh, there's you know, uh, the Academy of Music is performing there. No, you don't see that. It's some local ensemble that's playing. But why would you go? Number one, they're performing works that you're going to know, like the Vivaldi's, the, the thing that probably gets performed the most is Vivaldi's Four Seasons. But do you go for the violinist? Do you go for the, no, you go for the, you go for the ambiance, right? Oh, well, I want to see that church, but gosh, I can see it with classical music. And oh, it's Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Why not? I'll go. So the location can influence our appreciation for the art. And certainly that was the case when we think of opera houses and we think of performance spaces and auditoriums and these places we go today to hear classical music. Some of them were designed to hear music. Others were not. Others were designed for other purposes in which music may have been a part of it, like a church. But that performance space impacts performance practice. And in some cases, folks ignore that, and I try to call them out when I hear it, at least in a recording, and I would also call them out if I were to go live and hear it as well. Uh, the thing is, I live in such a place where hearing live performance of Baroque music is, is, is not a common everyday activity. I don't live in Paris. I can't go to the, the local church or cathedral every other day and, and hear a performance. So I'm at a loss there, but in recordings, um, there are the acoustic space can be captured, and we typically describe it as being live, or we hear reverb, or we hear echo, or we hear um, smear, if you will, right? When the micro the, the the space is very reverberant, but the microphones aren't close enough, and so what we get is a sort of uh, smearing effect. And in one performance in particular that we're going to share with BW 1044, that smearing uh, effect is, is in play. And it's not always a, necessarily a bad thing. It's just a different aesthetic. And it may impact performance, right? If you're in a very live sounding location, you typically don't press the tempo fast because everything's going to sound like a smear to the audience. Um, likewise, if you're in a very dry location, you probably don't want to play very, very slowly because, well, it's just going to drag out and be boring. So there are instances of that that get captured in the recording itself. And I, too many times I find that um, if I don't like, if I can't give a recording, you know, 
all five stars or all uh, you know 99 out of 10 it's because there is some issue with the recording quality and I try to separate that out and at least give credit to the performers when I can clearly hear it different from the, the space and so when we compare examples today I want you to be aware of that that in looking in so many examples of this first movement that starts out with a theme and uh, we're looking for the clarity of the different instruments so you better believe the harpsichord probably doesn't have to compete here um, the violin not a problem it's the flute we're worried really worried about so the transverse flute was sort of the newest invention at the time and Bach lived in a time where the recorder was still popular but it was on its way out and the the transverse or the flute that you held across the body therefore the word transverse uh, was the the new thing it was the the French um, artistic way to express the flute and of course it was sort of a new invention where you weren't blowing into something you were blowing across and you were fingering things very differently and of course that's the flute that won out right because recorders are sort of delegated to elementary school music programs and Baroque music and the flute won out um, eventually turning into a, uh, a metal instrument uh, let's start out as a wood instrument and so as it starts out like the early piano it's kind of soft and there were instruments that were better uh, suited towards ensemble there were instruments that were better suited for larger spaces and the majority of instruments were rather I would say quiet it was a chamber instrument and it only became uh, just as the violin kind of uh, morphed into a different instrument by the modern age to project itself into a large concert hall with different strings and a different bridge and a different shape to the neck so that higher notes could be achieved the flute also changed into a um, an instrument with more mechanicals an instrument that was made out of steel and an instrument that could be um, be in better tune and carry itself across a large ensemble so we're sort of at this this delicate spot when we look at this concerto for balance and of course with modern recording engineering we can improve an imbalance a natural imbalance and I'm not going to speak so much about what folks do because I don't know I wasn't there when it was recorded but you can run into issues where the balance sounds great but that's of no credit to the performers it was the recording engineers who mic'd it in such a way that they could boost the sound of the flute in the ensemble or make at best make everything sound balanced and then if you go to a modern performance uh, uh, excuse me a live performance where you're actually sitting in an audience and you hear things and you're like whoa or is, is that all balanced uh, there's a couple things to keep in mind um, was it balanced for Bach what was the size of space Bach was performing this type of work in because more likely than not the 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 place you're sitting in listening to this performed on on um, old copies may have been um, you may be, be hearing on the right instruments but in a totally wrong space 
which may uh, really influence your interpretation of what you hear. Uh, and you're like, gosh, that that's not so good. Or, or, boy, those performers aren't so good. And part of it is, yeah, the choice of the instrument. But even with the loudest wood transverse flute, there may be issues with register based on how the notes are placed. And that is something to com- to consider when you listen to it, but I would also say it's part it just it's just part of the the animal. The part where I get upset or the part I get really critical is where folks do like two or three things to to make it worse. Right? They're performing in a space that's really reverberant. The the loud instruments are kind of taking over, they're smearing over the the quiet instruments. And then they're and you know they put the flute player in the back. And the loudness was in the front, and you're like, well, how, how am I supposed to enjoy this? So those are the things to get critical about. Uh, what I want you to listen for in this is definitely the, the clarity of the recordings, the tempo. Tempo is a huge, huge issue for some folks. It is for me. There are some tempos for me that work, and the rest of them don't work so much. And that doesn't mean that there's one right tempo. If I'm making any point in this, it's it's a match of tempo to the space. And it's a, a match of tempo with with all those other properties that, that make to how it sounds. Because literally when I'm listening to it, I'm listening to speakers or I'm listening to headphones. Today I happen to be auditioning this with speakers in a relatively small room. And so I get a pretty accurate a feel for what the recording is supposed to sound like. And I want you to use that critical ear as well as you audition these different examples I'm going to put in front of you. The first one is one where I think uh, there's a, there's uh, the performers are not in the most ideal location for this concerto to really sing. And I don't think the performance is bad but it's not one of the best ones that I own. You're going to hear some smearing, and part of that is because of the acoustics. You're going to hear just musicians who are not tightly meshed together. Um, And even though I give you that opinion, see what you think in this first example of the opening movement of BWV 1044, the triple concerto in A minor. So 
when we hear that, we hear that the ensemble comes in together, uh, the orchestra goes away, we get some trio texture with basso continuo, and then the orchestra comes back, and then we go back. So Bach is following a kind of Italian structure of ritornello solo interaction, with the solo being a, a true triple concerto, three different soloists uh, playing together. And what did you think of the balance? So for me, the thing I'm sort of missing out of that ensemble sound is bass. It seems very treble heavy. There's not a lot of uh, bass that comes through. Um, and I, I, it's not to say they don't have uh, adequate performers. It's the recording space. This is recorded in a real uh, church and a real live performance of a church. This performance is by the English Baroque soloists under the direction of John Elliott Gardner. And this is part of the Bach Cantata pilgrimage. Uh, they ended up performing this concerto as sort of uh, filler material, if you will, alongside the, the cantatas. And I really appreciate the fact they included it. I think the sort of live acoustic signature that's captured in this is sort of interesting, but I don't think it's the most optimal um, conditions for us to enjoy this. To give you an example of how this could sound so different, we're going to listen to another version of this um, recorded in the studio, which has a much drier acoustical signature to it. So this was concerto, um, not concerto, Les Concerts Français um, by uh, director Pierre Antai, who is also the harpsichordist. This is a recording from 1994 that appeared on the Auto Astray label, uh, which I believe has been part of the uh, Opus 111 network 
Um, it's probably come under reissue since then, but the, the recording I have is a CD that has a Vermeer on the cover. It's a girl at the Virginals, and it included uh, the concertos 1052 1054, um, in addition to a couple preludes and fugues, 892 and 880, on the harpsichord as kind of filler between those three major concertos. The um, the performer the soloist along with Pierre were his brother Mark on flute and Francois Fernandez on the violin. And I really, despite the age on this recording, I really think it's clear. It's pretty straightforward. There's nothing controversial about it. It's just basically it. This clocks in at 8.37 as a total first movement. And I'm going by the times on the CD. I'm not actually timing this out myself for dead air, but uh, 8.37. And the Elliot Gardner version uh, actually clocks at 8.42, although I, I thought that the tempo was maybe slightly faster on the Gardner, which I like, but um, I actually would have thought that the tempo chosen by... Um, Mr. Hentai might have been a better choice in the Gardner just because of that liveness to the acoustical sound. Um, but it is what it is. That's that's that version. And again, um, nothing too extrovert about the recording, but uh, nicely captured and I think nicely balanced for what the instruments are. It sounds pretty honest. Harpsichord is not a loud instrument and it doesn't come across loud here but neither is the transverse flute, and the violin seems to me to be sympathetic to the, um, the carrying power of those two instruments and kind of fits in and does what it does. It can come above, but it can also go in the background, and Bach certainly uh, in that texture when the three solos come out, uh, there are places for that theme to come out. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. We heard in the second entrance that the harpsichord picks it up, of course. And so uh, as, as the instrument instrumentalists go through, they have the opportunity to, to sort of carry that main theme. Uh, the next version I'm going to present to you is one that clocks in at eight minutes. Uh, exactly. Um, this is a recording from 1994. Uh, I don't think it is without issues, but nevertheless, it's sort of exciting. So I give this a listen.
So I'm in love with the tempo. I think the tempo really works here. And what's very interesting to me about the recorded sound is this uh, almost crystal clarity that we get with the harpsichord. The harpsichord cuts through the texture. And to me, it is likely artificial. Um, I've never heard a performance like this where uh, the strings are so muddied uh, when the whole ensemble plays, it's almost a blur. You can hardly hear them. You hear the harmonies that come through, but the the microphones simply aren't close enough to the strings to pick up the various parts. Uh, and of all the recordings, it's the violin here in that trio texture that gets muddled. Uh, we sort of almost lose the violin. The flute comes across, but the, the violin is sort of lost in the texture for me. And the harpsichord is always front and center. So it is a challenge to get the harpsichord in front and center. It takes a microphone to be placed right in front of the harpsichord. You might expect in this version that the harpsichordist is also the director. This is Sig, Sig uh, let me find his name precisely. Uh, I don't want to mispronounce it. Siegbert Ramp. Uh, this is La Stravaganza Hamburg there. Uh, as far as I know, there's single recording on the Virgin Veritas label. Uh, this came out as a very uh, somewhat controversial and exciting release when it came out in 94. I remember getting it and thinking, oh my gosh, they've, they've, they've really blown the dust off. They, they are competing, if you will, with um, Musica Antiqua Colne's recording uh, a few years earlier in the 80s. This one uh, really blew away speeds on some of the Brandenburgs, but it was plagued, if you will, um, with the, the quality of the sound recording, which is unfortunate because I think there are some incredible things going on in this recording, um, especially when it comes to Brandenburg and chair number one. And as a bonus in this release, we get the triple concerto into, in addition to the Brandenburgs. I love the speed. I I think uh, it is the perhaps second most fast uh, recording I have of the first movement. But for the acoustical treatment, uh, it works and doesn't work. Uh, the dryness of the harpsichord works just fine. The performers, I think, tackle the, the tempo just fine. But it's that, uh, it's, it's the, uh, the way it was recorded that to me it suffers with the speed they chose. And of course, if they had recorded it slower, we still would have had some of those issues, but it would have perhaps released uh, the, the smearing, if you will, of, of the sound uh, when it comes to the orchestra. It, the orchestra clearly here is in the background and it's large enough to where it uh, doesn't, I think, help the recording. Uh, otherwise, I think there's a lot to admire in the recording in terms of interpretation. You may have noticed that the, the um, starting tone was lower. Uh, this is one of those ensembles that have chosen to choose a different uh, reference for A. They, they choose a whole, a whole step lower rather than a half step, which is typical in Baroque uh, performance. So they're playing around 392 uh, for the A, whereas most performances are around, around 415. And so when you compare them back to back, it does sound lower. And when we go to the next example, it'll be a little higher. Right, and so the uh, the last version I'm going to share with you is is the slowest one I have, 
This is a recording, believe it or not, on historic instruments from 1976. And uh, it clocks in the first one of nine and a half minutes, 934 to be precise. And this is Gustav Lenhart on harpsichord with the Collegium Aureum, um, his ensemble. And this, um, this came in a collection that I purchased uh, after he uh, passed away a few years ago. This is a collection put together, I believe, by Sony Classical of, of recordings of uh, Lenhart that they had in the, their catalog. And it included this uh, collection that featured uh, his uh, brother, uh, Barthold. It featured, uh, excuse me, not his brother, his colleague, Barthold Kuken. Um, uh, of course, Barthold plays with uh, his, his brother uh, on violin, and he plays with his other brother on the gamba. Uh, Barthold is the, um, the flutist. And the violinist uh, featured is Franz Joseph Mayer, who uh, I don't, I think this is the only recording I have of Mayer. Uh, Mayer, along with Edward Melkus, were uh, uh, tutors or uh, teachers to Reinhard Goebel. Uh, and so this is sort of a link to uh, that that lineage of performance, if you will. And of course, there are so many harpsichordists that uh, had the opportunity to stay with Lenhart, and there is a, a lineage there as well. So this is a uh, little slower recording, but even though it's slower, I want you to hear what the benefits may be at taking this first movement a little more slowly. And because we're only been listening to the beginning, I'm actually going to cut into the middle of the movement so we can talk a little bit more about the music and not just the performance.
So what you think? The performance there had really good balance. Um, I heard uh, all the solo instruments very clearly. Uh, harpsichord came through, of course. The violin came through. The flute came through when it needed to. The flute at times got a little obscured when it was not the main voice. Uh, but when it was the main voice, it sounded great. And the there's two things that really caught my ear. Number one was the vibrato in the violin, solo violin, which seemed uh, out of place right now when we've listened to more modern performances in a historically informed way. We've sort of lost the reliance upon vibrato. And so it sounds a little bit out of place to me. Uh, the second is sort of the thinness of the sound which I believe is partially due to the uh, recording quality at the time. Um, and certainly the other thing that we might make uh, reference to is the strictness. Uh, the, um, there were recordings out of this era between the 70s and the 80s. The critics said it, the music sounded very academic. Um, it had this very academic feel, which which was a, a negative word. Uh, academic to me sounds like a perfectly uh, innocuous, uh, uh, unbiased word, but it meant that things were very uh, to the letter, right? We were reading right off the score, and in the score there's uh, basically no room for human emotion. And if we were listening to performances of uh, music in the last five years, let's say, um, probably the it, we've moved the mainstream to where historically informed also comes with it a, a different uh, feeling to the performance. Uh, there's a little more uh, human a uh, human element to it. It's not so robotic. It's not so uh, perfect to the metronome, and that's something that stands out to me, especially when you slow it down. So I'm not a real fan of the tempo. Once you get into it, it, it kind of works. It's fine. Uh, but there are just a few, too many things that I wouldn't want this to be your only recording of the work. I think it's a, a very important historic recording uh, in that we have uh, some performers um, who are still performing. Um, the Kiwican brothers are still performing. And so... Uh, I, it would be interesting to say, what do you think? Uh, and I'm sure uh, they've recorded this many times uh, over. Um, I know with La Petite Bond and, and different ensembles, they've likely uh, put to not only live performance, but to record different versions of this. It would be interesting to say, hey, what did you think about that 1976 version that you recorded? Uh, how, did, how did it last for you? How did it endure and what were the choices that were being made? Because there's always compromises being made when you make a record in terms of uh, the space and whatnot. Uh, it was a pretty dry recording for me. It was, um, and when I say dry, I don't mean that in a negative way. It means it, it wasn't, we didn't suffer in the same ways that our, our previous recording did in terms of too live and acoustical space. So that was really good about it. But again, I think in terms of the tempo, I would prefer something just a little quicker and something with a little more expressivity to it. And so I will get to now my final version that will be my kind of pick for uh, VW 1044. And I'll let you listen to it first and then I'll reveal who uh, are the performers. 
Cafe Zimmerman. Uh, director is Pablo Valletti. And I'm looking up here on flute, we had uh, Diana Baroni. And we had, of course, Pablo Valletti was the violinist. And the, the harpsichordist is, uh, for that ensemble is Celine Frisch. And she was, uh, says here, this, well, it says harpsichord was Dirk Borner. Um, I should look this up on the line. So he's a contributor to it, but Celine Frisch is the main, I would assume she was the soloist. Uh, she has played with him in the, on the harpsichord concertos. Uh, this came out in 2008 on the uh, Alpha production label. And, excuse me, and this was um, the Speed Demon. It comes in just under eight minutes. Um, and you heard that that speed likely almost sounds rushed when you hear it, but it works for me. Uh, there are slower performances, which I can go with. Uh, Musica Antiqua Colon, which I'm not going to play right now, uh, comes in around 8.13, so just slightly slower than this. And they're typically my Speed Demon uh, reference. And so this ensemble pushes it just even a little faster. But within the acoustic, it works. Uh, nothing sounds uh, smeared or overly rushed. There are times when you want to just breathe a little bit, but there's something about that perpetual motion that that just seems to work. And not saying that this is the only choice, uh, but when you push it this fast, it does tend to work for me. And in terms of the issues of balance that we've been talking about, uh, I think this is, is, a, is a clear winner in the terms of having clarity, having balance, and really um, serving the music well. So this is the beginning uh, opening to BDV 1044, the Triple Concerto. Now, the middle movement. Uh, I'm going to use the same uh, ensemble to illustrate the uh, what's going on in the middle movement. Um, this is a, as you might imagine, a three movement concerto, uh, as Bach has been uh, known to write. He liked the three movement form that uh, was popularized probably by Vivaldi and others. Um, and he does a fast, slow, fast organization here. And so this is the opening to the slow movement uh, to B2V 1044. So pizzicato, you may have noticed it in the first movement, it is called for, uh, and here we get pizzicato with the violin. Uh, there are not a ton of examples, but there are enough that Bach wrote for plucking the strings of the violin as opposed to bowing them. And it really stands out here because the violin is sort of 
standing back while two different solo parts emerge. Uh, the, the right hand of the harpsichord and the flute get the, the solo treatment, and they, they've got uh, two lines that are sympathetic with one another. I think the, the flute definitely comes across as the, as the lead, and then it goes into a section that we just heard where the violin takes over, and then the flute uh, takes the back seat. And so with Bach's treatment of this movement, we get the three soloists by themselves, which uh, invariably is the same type of treatment that Bach gave the Fifth Brandenburg Concerto, where the, the orchestra sort of gets out of the way and the three soloists get to enjoy one another. So this, in a way, is uh, a concerto that um, uh, shares a lot, I think, with the Fifth Brandenburg, not only the scoring, but the... Uh, the design maybe uh, we don't get that big uh, solo that we do in the, in the the fifth Brandenburg but uh, who is to say that Bach didn't insert something himself uh, if he was at the keyboard where might this have been performed well the the name of this ensemble is Cafe Zimmerman and we know that Bach likely uh, used his uh, concertos or his arrangements of concertos at the Zimmerman Coffee House, which is where the ensemble takes its name, um, as a place to uh, perform concertos along with the uh, amateur group that he helped lead in Leipzig after uh, Telemann's uh, founding of the group. So Bach comes in his main job, of course, in the church, and this is sort of a side job where uh, more than likely, he uh, performed with family members and uh, local star musicians and for entertainment purposes, while folks could uh, sit around and en enjoy a cup of joe, if, as it were. Um, so this is kind of a neat movement. Gives the souls a place to shine, gives them a place for improvisation. So I'm going to let the music come back in and uh, enjoy a little bit more of this movement, and then we'll look at the third, the, the final movement, uh, back to a, uh, a fast tempo.
couple notes I make at this point are that um, the bass comes across really well balanced in this recording, uh, which can be hard to do. It can be hard to do in a live performance, but it seems very well balanced in that sense, uh, which I appreciate. The second thing is that the ensemble, when they ended the, f the second movement, went to the third, there was the opportunity to really embellish or to do something with that cadence at the end, uh, especially in that it ends sort of on a minor note, uh, which is a nice setup for the last movement, which again returns to a minor key from the kind of heavenly, uh, nice, soft, relaxing middle movement that Bach writes. Um, and they don't take it. They don't really do anything special there, which is, is fine. Uh, but it really speaks to the, I think, uh, aesthetic of Cafe Zimmerman, which has been pretty consistent across the recordings, which they tend to adopt medium to fast tempi. They are technically very good, but they don't go out of the way with extrovert type of extra stuff that um, uh, some ensembles do. And so that's that's sort of to their signature. Whether you like that or not, I'll leave that up to you, but just want to point it out that there was an opportunity there for me to do some solo embellishment that maybe I expected just a little bit since you have three instruments and what could they, you know, uh, aside from having an ensemble, they could have embellished in some ways. And they, they really don't. They, they kind of stick to the letter. Uh, they do a very nice job. If at all about balance, the violin might be the, the most loud of the instruments. Uh, for my taste in, in the listing setup that I have, I may prefer the, the violin to have been uh, maybe meshed a little better with the flute. The harpsichord comes across pretty clearly. Uh, the harpsichord is really, as you open that third movement, you hear this fugal movement uh, where a theme emerges and different parts take the theme. And then it's like, everybody get out of the way. Let's listen to the harpsichord. Let's listen to Mr. Bach. And you sort of, if it hasn't been clear by now, he dominates the one of the two voices in the middle movement with the right hand, the harpsichord. And you can better believe that he likely was doing some improvisation. And here is this, this very mechanical sounding, lots of notes, intense. You know, the flute and violin parts really are kind of docile compared to this harpsichord part and this is a piece likely written for Bach the performer and if not him somebody who was a very strong keyboard persona uh, because it is this sort of uh, there's a little imbalance in the writing if you will for the harpsichord uh, this is a concerto for I would say harpsichord violin flute and strings if I were to give it an order because of the complexity of that harpsichord part, which comes across very nicely in this recording. Again, this is Cafe Zimmerman, and uh, this is directed by Pablo Valetti. If you don't know anything about Mr. Valetti, he uh, has been in the, on the scene for a while. He, I would say, was a friend or a, at least a colleague of Manfredo Kramer, who... Uh, you may know from Musica Antigua Coln, who performed with uh, Reinhard Goebel. They, the two of them went on to found an ensemble, which the very curious name, the, the Rare Fruits Council, which I have always enjoyed their recordings. Uh, Pablo played second violin to Manfredo Kramer, 
and uh, this is uh, his sort of ensemble, Cafe Zimmerman, uh, focused around uh, the idea of box performances at the famous Leipzig Coffee House. I'm going to end this with one other example for you to taste. This will be from the third movement, and after we listen to it and compare it to what we just heard, I will reveal the performers and close the episode. So what a, what a difference, right, in the tempo. Um, this particular movement clocks in at 7 minutes and 41 seconds with the Academy of Ancient Music under the directorship of Andrew Manzi, violinist, and the harpsichordist is Richard Egar. And just as a comparison, the Café Zimmerman uh, clocks in at 6.15, so a minute and a half longer for this uh, movement in terms of the tempo. And it really seems to work for the harpsichord part, right? The harpsichord part by itself, when we get to it, it seems to be um, well measured. It's it's crystal clear. It's 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 as if you're in the front row. It really sounds great. But then when the other instruments come in and the the, the coloring of, if you will, the, when the flute comes in, it's this color, right? Uh, it really isn't treated as a solo instrument. It's treated as an orchestral color in this instance. So when it comes in, it it just doesn't feel right to me. It sounds a little boring. Uh, the, th the clue here is that Bach writes this alla breve, which is uh, basically if you were used to reading a 4-4, this is a halftime, uh, which is we call sometimes call this cut time. Uh, you'll see the, the, key, the time signature is a C with a, with a slash through it, which basically means the, the values get halved. Which is interesting because usually in, that means that we have a quick tempo. And uh, so I would 
being sort of uh, goalposts at 746 and 615 being the fast and the slow, you know, what does um, uh, the, the slowest record we had, which was um, the Gustav Lenhart version, he comes in at 7.53, so he's even longer than this. If we look at ramp, uh, I actually don't have that available in front of me. If we look at uh, the concert, the, the French concert, uh, they played at 6.40, so um, just a little bit longer than, than the other version. And if we look at Musique Antique with Cologne, this is an example 6.49, so uh, this version, tends to be on the slower side, uh, which is fine. I think I think they make their point. I think the harpsichord part, part really comes out clear with Richard Egar. I think he adds some embellishment to it, which fits the tempo. But in terms of the whole ensemble, it was, this, it was as if the harpsichordist convinced the rest of the group what tempo to play, uh, which fit the harpsichord part. But what about the whole ensemble? And to me, for this to really flow, I just need a little faster. In terms of clarity, uh, it's a very nicely recorded. This was on Harmonia Mundi. Uh, this came out uh, while Andrew Manzi was still the uh, director of Academy of Ancient Music. They did a number of recordings together. And this, is, this was coupled, not with the Brandenburg concertos, but with the uh, harpsichord concertos under Egar, uh, under the directorship of Manzi. And uh, the Academy of Ancient Music later, when Richard Egar became director, then recorded the, the six Brandenburg concertos. Um, and Manzi was, was out of the picture at that point. And they've never been known to be the, the fastest players on earth. So um, we, we can't expect them to be, you know, the speed demons. But the question isn't who's the fastest and is the fastest the best. I think you could make the case almost, if you wanted to, I, I could be convinced that the opening movement by Cafe Zimmerman pushes the envelope. Um, there are times that it just feels a little uncomfortable to me. It's not that I don't like it. I picked it as my kind of exemplar recording in this in this episode. And I think their tempo that they choose for the last movement really fits well for me. First movement, you could talk me into being a little too fast. In this version, however, I think I could... I could maybe talk you into thinking that oh, this is a little too slow. Um, but all around, I hope I've given you some different samples of some different readings of this concerto. Again, uh, some takeaways from it. Uh, Bach is using uh, some of the same forces and some of the same ideas that he applied in the fifth Brandenburg concerto written for the same forces. However, in this version, uh, he is not giving necessarily equal treatment to all three voices just as he sort of took over and over embellished, if you will, with the harpsichord part in the fifth Brandenburg concerto, the first movement having that long cadenza. We lose that here, but we definitely hear in this concerto that there's a uh, seemingly a more important part written for the harpsichord. Uh, it's, it's, it's a written out part. It's not just basso continuo, which I, I must point out that there is a written out right hand and that Bach employs that um, throughout the concerto and giving a little bit more solo time, if you will, to the, the harpsichord part, especially here in the third movement. In the second movement, we get that trio texture where Bach is focusing on two, kind of a trio sonata texture, if you will, where we get two 
uh, main voices and the third solo instrument gets to play sort of chordal accompaniment. Uh, and with the violin, he employs the pizzicato technique, which is also employed in the, uh, the outer concertos, uh, which I tend to think of as a little more modern approach for Bach. I don't know if, if musicologists would agree with me there, but to me it comes across as sort of a modern um, application of the sound. And so that's the triple concerto. It's a, it's to me, uh, it could be one of the six Brandenburg concertos. It kind of fits in that mold. It is, um, it's got some interesting themes as we always seem to get with box concertos. I love the middle movement. It's a delicious movement. It'd be fun to play. Uh, I think there are opportunities there for improvisation. And of all the versions that I have, I don't really have one that really milks that really you know, doesn't take advantage of that, uh, at least not to the point where they're overdoing it. And I, I'm the type of collector, if you haven't figured out now, that I like I like the stuff that's on the conservative side. I like the stuff that, that goes over, and I like a lot of stuff in the middle. Um, and I like to bring some of that to you. And so today I've given uh, you some samples. I've really tried to focus on tempo as the thing that differentiate a lot of these performances. And my point to you is that fastest is not best but that the tempo should match the acoustic for which um, the performers find themselves. And obviously you could go too fast or too slow just to, it doesn't fit the music. And in this version of the Academy of Ancient Music, um, I think the harpsichord, the tempo had chosen for the third movement especially, fits the harpsichord part really well. I don't think it serves the whole ensemble. I think the other, the other two solo instruments end up kind of being coming across a little boring. Um, and so that might be my criticism of that on that uh, recording. You may find different. You might think, hey, I don't like it so fast. I want to slow it down a little bit and enjoy uh, what Bach is doing with the line. And it's easier for me to hear that when it's slower. Uh, I definitely can understand that. Um, and I think in collecting recordings and listening to different recordings of different tempi, uh, yeah, the first thing is shock. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so much slower than the one I'm used to, or oh my gosh, it's so much faster than what I'm used to. But what does it sound like? What does it do for the music? And if you get recordings at different tempi that, that fit the space, and then we're, now we're just talking about what does the tempo do for the music? Bach, the perfect example for this, I think, is the Bach Sixth Brandenburg Concerto. The third movement um, that movement for me um, can go at all different kinds of tempos. It, it, it just works. It's a happy, it is a dance. You could go at any tempo, and that, that to me just works. You could probably make the case for it. But it's the controversial first movement for me that 90% of the time has been recorded way too slow. There's just something about the pulse of the way the music feels. And it's so hard to describe. It's the way it feels that most of them are just too slow for me. It doesn't work. And that's why when I, I came across uh, Musica Antigua Colon's version of the Brandenburg Concertos, they, they blew the first one out of the water. They played it like double the tempo that some people did. And people said, oh my gosh, it's just rushed. It's, it's, ah. But for me, it fit, it fit the metric pulse of the music. And for me, that it woke up to me. It was like, whoa, this is the way it should be heard. And 
that's my opinion, right? And that's obviously they had an opinion about it. They chose to record at that speed. And that's not to say I'm right, right? I mean, these are interpretive, subjective uh, uh, opinions. So when you listen to the different examples in this podcast or you go out and search for your own and you're trying to make decisions about what you like and what you don't like, the thing to remember is how does it feel to you? And is there a reason why? That, that is the question, why? Why does this feel better? Why does that uh, why does that tempo work for you? What is the benefit of this tempo? And I think you could make the case for a slow tempo versus a, a faster tempo based on your aims. And again, hearing the intricacy of the harpsichord part, uh, if you really wanted to, that to come out, I would pick the Academy Ancient Music version. If you wanted, if you just like it fast and you want, you want it to bounce and you want to be able to snap your fingers along with it, Cafe Zimmerman would be the pick. And if you kind of want a middle of the road, uh, you know, there's lots of examples in the middle that, that aren't the fastest or the slowest. And they do some, some neat things. And so I hope some of this uh, got pointed out to you as you heard these examples. This has been a long episode for me. This is over an hour. And I, um, I really don't know when I start these what the, what the time will be. But I hope I gave you enough examples in this episode for you to wet your whistle. Uh, and explore this triple concerto by Bach. It's sort of uh, it's it's the odd stepchild because it doesn't fit in a collection. Uh, people don't know where to put it. They tack it on with other collections. But I think it is a concerto that's worth your time and worth your effort to listen to. There's no doubt in my mind it is written by Bach. It has Bach's signature to it, uh, and it, I think it's well wrought. And I think uh, there's plenty to enjoy. So. With that, I want to thank you, listeners, for listening. This is the 30th episode of BachCast. Uh, visit me online at bieberfan.org. That's B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. And my name is John Hendrick. See you next time.